Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Hey, wherever you are... However you're listening, welcome to America's talk radio show about opera, period. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho and Tobias Wright. Our guest co-hosts tonight are Amy Stebbins and Hauke Berheide. We are live on WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago, so you can be one of our listeners who gets to have their say on air. 847-866-WNUR is the number in studio. Hey, we're also streaming live, wnur.org slash pop-up. Again, hey, call us, 847-866-9687. All right, people, I hope you brought your brains tonight. Returning to the OBS our stage director, Amy Stebbins, and composer, Hauke Berheide. So you know tonight's discussions are going to be intelligent, thoughtful, and informed. Hey, sometimes change is good. First, we go inside the huddle and talk about what shows Amy and Hauke have seen recently, as well as catching up on what sorts of projects they're working on now. Then, 20 minutes, it's Chalk Talk. Recently, there have been extensive debates about race and equal opportunity casting in standard repertoire operas. Tonight, we go one step further and discuss casting decisions made by librettists and composers of new works and how modern categories like realism and authenticity have put limits on how the distinctions between role, body, and voice are utilized. And, of course, you get all your opera headlines and some hot takes on them, maybe even in the two-minute drill. That's at 9.40 p.m., Let's introduce everybody on the show tonight. Man, we got a full house. Hey, Oliver it's, Camacho. It's so crowded in here. I'm sitting on top of Hauke's lap, and Amy is giving me looks sideways. <laughs> that sounds exciting. But I enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> we got Oliver Camacho in the house. We got Tobias Wright. It's good to be here. Here as yeah. well. Tobias Amy Stebbins, are you there? Lap, so. Hi, George. <laughs> and last, but by no means least, Hauke Berheide. Good evening. Good evening. Uh, <laughs> hey, we want to um, we want to talk a little sports. I guess the the problem right now is that we are in the sports doldrums. I disagree. Bias. You disagree? It's NBA playoffs, man. Nobody cares. Are you what? <laughs> That's absurd. The greatest player for anybody who's not an NBA fan, uh, the greatest player of all time is playing right now in his prime in the Eastern Conference Finals, and he's going to single-handedly destroy what could have been a dynasty in the Golden State Warriors, okay. and his name is LeBron James. I was going to say, Jordan retired like 15 years ago. Uh, Jordan is not the greatest player of all time. That is LeBron James. LeBron James! We're going to have to right, back to opera. I'm sorry. Wait a second. <laughs> the the French one. Open okay. just started today, so that's, that's a sports story, and that's one that I care about. I love those short shorts. Despite, um... There are short shorts in the NBA, too, Oliver. In the NBA? No, they wear long shorts. Oh, man. Everything's a short short if you're six foot ten. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. It's opera box score on WNUR. Man, the house is full tonight. Amy Stebbins, Hauke Berheide joining us. We saw you guys last in March of this year. Yeah, I think March. At least it was still cold. Yeah. <laughs> It's still gold. I was going to say, that hasn't changed. Well, it's a bit better. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what um, have you two seen recently that you want to tell us all about? Well, quite recently, I mean, it was like at the end of April, I went to the Harris Theater to see a production by um, the Chicago Opera Theater, um, The Perfect American by Philip Glass in a production um, by Mitischek and um, Kevin Newberry. It was very exciting. Um, I was very happy to see a full house um, and enthusiastic um, um, fans. The composer himself was present. 
So it was um, an exciting evening. Ah, so you and I went to the same performance that you Sunday same afternoon. Time. You didn't feel each yes. other's presence? Oh, ma- oh that's what that was. <laughs> now, I, now I can feel it. So how did you like it? Uh I, I'm gonna be honest. We, we uh, talked about it already on this show. We, we, so, yeah. we did, yeah. Uh, I liked it. I really liked it. I love Philip Glass's music. I yeah. think it had first act problems. The second yeah. act was great, but like the first act, yeah. it took a long time yeah. for the narrative to become yeah. clear. You yeah. know, yeah. a little bit too much metaphor, too much symbolism, and not enough just like good singing and like storytelling. You know. Yeah, there could have been some more conflicts, like visible conflicts between characters and things. But I liked the cast. I liked how the singers would sing, and that was um, surprisingly well done. So, yeah, I liked it. <laughs> you sound so impressed. <laughs> well, no, I mean, yeah, it was my first visit to uh, Chicago Opera Theatre. I didn't know what yeah. I would ex- have to expect. So that it's was really it. strange because yeah. Andreas Mitasek has taken the company to a place where they can do a work like that and the audience yeah. is not surprised. Mm-hmm. But he also has lost a lot of audience along the way. You know, mm-hmm. So there's a small group of people who are committed to that type of work. But it used to be that Chicago Opera Theatre was doing like Britain and Mozart and Handel and... That was definitely more of crowd pleasing. But know. now the Midisec era is over at Chicago Opera Theater, and we're going to see if the repertoire is going to change. And well, the coming season is a. If I feel like it's a Midisec season. It's, it's well, it would have they, to what be are they doing? because they're doing uh, Donizetti Double Bill, which is a little bit bizarro, but they're like kind of rare Donizetti operas. They're doing um, Minotti. Minotti. Uh, oh, there it is. The Council with um, what's her name? Patricia Rossette. Uh, then Elizabeth Cree by Kevin Putz, which I don't know at all, but I guess is something that I might know. It's a it's a new year. opera, of course. Yeah. I think it's starting at Philadelphia, mm. and then maybe there's another house that it's going to. But it's like based it on a book or Chicago. something. And, you know, I don't read. So yeah. Mark Campbell is the librettist <laughs> for that piece. The same team that was behind Silent mm. Night oh. from 2012. Mark Campbell is like. The everyman libretto these days. Like, he's like the Tom Hanks of librettists. Him and Royce Fabric. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I thought you were going to compliment him. <laughs> <laughs> you don't like Tom Hanks? Uh, I remember him from Big. But what... A- okay, we, we can talk about Tom Hanks another day. <laughs> yeah. I uh, may not be a small hey, man. Amy, what have you seen recently? Um, nothing recently, but I did, I think... Gosh, it must have been in late March or early... It was early April. I saw a preview of... Ter- um, Tracy Letts' new play, uh, Linda Vista at Steppenwolf. Oh, which is playing right now, isn't it? It yeah. is still playing. Was there oral on stage? There was a lot of on stage. Okay. Really? I yeah. need to go see that. <laughs> <laughs> was there oral there, there was quite a bit of nudity for an American production. I was really surprised. Oh. The, uh, and the audience... Male nudity? Oh, yeah. Mm. Actually, I think the only time I've seen full male nudity was at Steppenwolf. They love it. Oh. Yeah. Especially Tracy Lutz really loves it. Are you it. a never nude, Tobias? <laughs> what do you, no, I'm always nude. Hello. Okay, what do you, okay. <laughs> you, so you've seen your own male nudity? On stage. <laughs> oh, on stage. Okay. <laughs> wow. So, I, I, I Amy, the in the context so. of the play, what is this nudity? Oh, uh, two different sex scenes, two different women, same man. Uh, I had to know, do the math. Women appropriately shaved and <laughs> plucked and the man large and... Fat and hairy. Oh. <laughs> 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 a wonderful actor. He's really not that rotund. <laughs> the actors were all fabulous. But that. he just let it go bushy. <laughs> <laughs> he, went, he went all 70s on that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if it's all there, you just got to let it be there, I guess, right? Is anybody watching the new season of Fargo by any chance? No. <clears throat> okay, do you know what I'm talking about? No. Negative. Noah Hawley. Okay, never mind. Where can I watch this Fargo, um, Oliver? It's on FX. Oh. It's really good, I don't but have... it, it has to do with male nudity, and nobody else will get it, so okay. I withdraw. <laughs> so outside of the theater and outside of the opera house, Hauke and Amy, what sorts of projects are you guys working on? Mm, mostly preparing things, but right now we are really writing a piece which is going to be for children. It's going to happen in Augsburg. That's a formerly important city, like 500 years ago. Now it's a small city in the south of Germany. Um, They have a beautiful municipal theater um, and a great orchestra and they need a piece for children. So it's for the orchestra and um, an actor and a singer. And it's going to be called Einer hat einen Vogel, which means something like Einer has got a bird. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Einer is the name of a, of a boy, I guess. Exactly, yeah. although it will be played by an elderly man. 
Well, I don't think he's not elderly. I'm sorry. I'm and just exaggerating all of my time. I'm sorry to all the men I'm speaking about this evening. Although, <laughs> although originally we have been discussing having an elderly woman playing it. Yeah. We actually wanted to have an older woman, but um, as is the case in many German um, ensembles, they actually don't have an older woman. They only have uh, older men. Oh. Interesting. And the, the wow. actual story of the opera... Did you guys come up with it yourselves? I indeed, uh, we're we're still in the process of coming up with it. It's it's basically <laughs> a story about um, confronting the other and um, the the steps that uh, two people need to take in order to uh, to um, I guess get accustomed to one another and to recognize their similarities. And it it starts with a situation similar to Winnie the Pooh. Um, sitting in the darkness and not knowing which voices, uh, sounds and voices are coming from outside. Oh, and from Winnie the Pooh in the blustery day. Right? Yeah, or so the, yeah. so if the figure is afraid and at the end um, Aina is forced to let the guy or the something, whatever that is, in and it, it, it appears to be a bird and the two of them have to find a way to get along and yeah. this offers a lot of musical action and interaction. I think one of the important things is that Einar has the problem that he's decided to shut himself away from the world because it's too noisy and he's created sort of a soundproof house and doesn't want anything to come into it and then this bird gets in. And uh, we also are sort of interested in looking at this character who just doesn't want to pay attention to what's going on outside. Oh. So is the bird uh, also played by a singer or is it like an instrument? No, the bird is actually going to be a singer and a puppet. So the singer will not be embodying the bird, but there'll be a puppet. And Einar is being played by an actor. An old man. <laughs> a very young, attractive, fresh Augsburgian actor. <laughs> and so this is having an Aus Augsburg. Augsburg. Um, yeah. Augsburg. Yeah. It's perfect. It's yeah. between like Stuttgart and Munich, basically, right? Yeah, yeah. drink. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, I do. I do actually know. Um, I know a guy who uh, Georg Heckel. He mm. runs the um, or did run the sort of uh, the Kabebe there. Oh, so he's the guy who should be getting us our contract. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I was gonna I'll say, wait, tell him I shake you. that guy yeah. down. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, sorry, I was gonna say, and then we have um, another production, uh, just a production of Mauershaw that's going on in Lviv, in Ukraine, uh, this Mauershaw. Yep. Which um, our conductor, uh, Oksana Lunev, I think who we spoke about last time, who's right. becoming the chief conductor in, in Graz now, she's creating a festival in Western Ukraine um, focused on sort of a co combination of Mozart and contemporary classical music, and we will be featured in that. I'm sorry, how does that work? Yeah, I was gonna, can you talk a little bit more about that? that we still don't know how that okay, will work. Because well, but we do know how Mozart <laughs> figures into this. Yeah, right, of okay. course. Yeah, yeah. No. no, I mean, the crazy thing is um, the eldest son of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart um, actually lived in Western Ukraine. Which <laughs> was that, a German city at the time. Yeah, at that time. Well, it was Germanic, Austrian. Austrian. Um, it was part of the Austrian um, kingdom. Empire. Empire, sorry, yeah. So, and, yeah, and, and she's doing something fantastic. She's bringing, like, um, the long musical tradition of the city into contact uh, with modern art, modern music, um, and she tries to get in um, other European um, um, artists. Mm -hmm. And our piece, which we have written for last year for the Bavarian State Opera, Opera, we talked about the last time, has to do with Amazons, and the Amazons originally come from Ukraine. So, therefore, she was interested in building up that connection except the fact that she was uh, the conductor of the original um, world premiere so that's how amazons it. i'm so confused amazons yeah this the scythian peoples were probably located on the crimea so there was a sort of implicit relationship one between the amazons from Penthesilea from our show okay. and also the contempt the, the the current war that's being fought there so those, those were sort of underlying associations that the libretto was playing with. Just blew my mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, this is... <laughs> Clean up on aisle three. No. <laughs> as you were talking, I was like staring at like, oh my gosh, she's so much smarter than all of us. <laughs> it's opera box score on oh, WNUR, by the way. I, I can't even back. count to four. I want to go back to Ina Hatton Vogel. Yeah, yeah. Vogel, excuse me. That I'm just so thrilled, and it tickles me that in Germany, that... Uh, Opera House would basically c commission a new piece for children with a symphony orchestra mm -hmm. and all these personnel. I just I, tell me where in this country, Amy, you would find that. Oh God, don't ask me questions about the United States, George. You guys know about that, yeah. not me. T Tobias is raising his hand. Well, over here. I actually, 
later on in the year, I'm doing a, a world premiere of a youth opera, and there's going to be like 100 kids in it, and there's two adult roles. And it's going to be, you know, with orchestra. And that's at Sarasota Opera. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right I on. I also think okay. that one of Matt Alcoin's commissions in L.A. Opera is a children's Is it the zoo opera or whatever it's called? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I think he's doing another one. I might be completely wrong about this, but he definitely did um, uh, the second nature. There it at is. The, at the Lyric at the Opera. Lyric. Right. I mean, of course, he had much greater financial constrictions than we did. I think there were, he had a three-piece uh, music ensemble and then six singers. Mm-hmm. Um but, you know, I, I think that actually children's theater is something that people are a- willing and able to invest in because you can get, you know, money for, for education. Um, you know, of course, the benefit of having something like one of these houses in Germany is that you have the symphony orchestra available to you, which is right. really exciting. They're in the house already. And so. they're not unionized the way they are here in the United States. Oh, they, they are. Well, and yeah. at, eight, at 8 o'clock, they stand up regardless of where you are in rehearsal. But they're, they... Um, that's the same the world over. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's really... Really? Are they as... They have more like stipulations than their. They're German. They're punctual. I mean, there. Uh, <laughs> it depends on the contract. I mean, there may even things happen like you've got a timpani player, and he's got he's a timpani player, not a percussion player. So if you have a like a um, triangle, a triangle <laughs> hanging, which he should also play, he officially may refuse that. Okay. Which yeah. is of course ridiculous, and normally, <laughs> I mean, they, that, that's something which is improving a lot. Yeah, but. Structurally, this is how the things like that work. Yeah, it is great to have you guys back on the show. It's great to hear these reviews. It's great to hear what's coming up next for you. Coming up next on our show, it's Chalk Talk. Is there gender equality in newly composed opera production? Has the once common art of gender bending as part of op- the operatic form gone extinct? We're going to let you know. Keep it right here. WNUR eighty nine point three FM Opera Box Score. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Every day I wake up at 5 to give dad his medicine. Every day I wake up at 5 to give dad his medicine. At 6, I make his breakfast. Every day I wake up at 5 to give dad his medicine. At 6, I make his breakfast. At 7, I shower. Every day I wake up at 5. For those caring for a loved one, we hear you. That's why AARP created a community to help us better care for ourselves and the ones we love. Visit aarp.org caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Did you know that birthday parties help build confidence in kids? Yeah. Did you know that giving kids less sugar before bedtime helps them sleep better? Oh, totally. Did you know that friendly kids have more friends? Everybody knows that. Hey, guys, did you know that most people think they're using the right car seat for their kid, but they're not? I didn't know that. Parents who really know it all know for sure that their child is in the right car seat at the right age and size. Visit safercar.gov slash the right seat to make sure your child is protected. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Tune in to DJ Jazio's Groove Zone Saturday morning at 2 a.m. Chicago time for three hours of independent, rare groove, instrumental, and vocal hip-hop. Hosted by DJ Jaziel and co-host Real V on WNUR 89.3 FM, Chicago's Sound Experiment. That's Saturday morning at 2 a.m. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. That is for sure. Opera box score. WNUR George Cedarquist here with the likes of, oh my God, the list is long, Oliver Camacho. You know, the music, I didn't realize how catchy it is and Hauka is kind of jamming out to some of our, you know, little uh, in-between you have filler a, music. You have Tobias re- Wright. You haven't realized how dope our music is? <laughs> <laughs> Amy Stebbins. Yes. And <laughs> Hauka Verheide. Who is still here. <laughs> Back on the show with Thank us. Thank you for not leaving Hawkeye. These guys are these guys are on the show with us in March. So glad that they're back on the show. Amy, you brought this idea to us for the next segment. Mm. Can you set up the conversation? What sort of thoughts have been on your mind about this topic? Is there gender equality, not just in the standard repertoire, but in newly composed opera? Yeah, as the token woman in the group, I'm happy to address this topic. Um, 
That was a joke, guys. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the token homosexual. Ah. And okay. Tobias and is minority. The, don't, don't, don't you want and to introduce minority. this? Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm the German. I'm going to talk about race then. <laughs> Brilliant. Sure, sure. And we, um, George is the token Jew. That's huh. Ish. <laughs> I'm the hairy, middle-class white guy. Forget yeah. it. Well, you were the guy I saw in that play yeah, at Steppenwolf. I'm, I'm the, I'm the yeah. redneck. Yeah. <laughs> okay, sure. You're thing. the oppressor. Oh, no. <laughs> well, I would join him in gentlemen, that role. Gentlemen, <laughs> gentlemen, All right. So um, there's been a lot of conversation in the public sphere generally, I think, lately, um, you know, largely in film and in theater, but also to a certain degree in opera about, well, two issues that are separate but sometimes get mixed up. And one is equal opportunity, representation of, uh, you know, actors of color and of different genders getting their stories told and getting cast. And the other issue is the question of who's being cast in what roles, in the sense of um, if you have a trans character, if you're going to have a trans actor play the trans character. And so how can I've been talking a lot about how this impacts opera and how opera is different from, from film or theater. And of course, you know, as we'd all agree, opera, or maybe we wouldn't all agree, but at least I'll, I'll put down as a provocation, opera begins with the voice, um, which has a different relationship to our exterior body than say, um, uh, you know, the world of film or, or of theater. And uh, so we wanted to start this conversation with like a minor provocation, which Hauke, I guess, is going to introduce, if that's what yes. that waving means. Go for it. And Hauke, we've got some uh, sound clips ready to go as well. Oh, wow. Yeah, and that's what I wanted to start with, because on the first thing we are hearing is something actually everybody may know. It's Ombra Maifu, sung by someone I'm not going to announce yet. Um, so it's an old soundbite, um, because, well, the opera was written like in 1730-what-something? Um, uh, um, yeah, uh, early 18th century. 38, yeah. okay. 38, so it's an old, old opera, but it's interesting because the genre of opera has always offered opportunities for this question, and they are more diverse than normally we would expect. So I would like to hear number one from the soundbites. Go soundbite number one. Wonderful. So, this moment, Xerxes, Cersei, the great um, um, Persian king, in the beginning of the opera, a hero, is standing in front of a tree and sings about how much he loves him. It's, it, it's a bit strange. So, but it's about a how much male. He loves the tree. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit strange, but it's a male hero, and we hear this voice, and that's very exciting. And it's an entrance aria. Top of that, so it's our introduction to the character. So. Yeah, yeah. So, but the audience of the time fully expected a voice like that to come out of the hero, and I think like we live in a time now where there are still some audience members that maybe have never heard a male character with a trouble voice. Yeah, trouble, not troubled, trouble. You know. Yeah. Well, I that I guess raises the first question: Was that a man or a woman? Yeah. Well, I know who it was. I mean, even after I've read the synopsis of, of what you're doing here, but that voice is completely recognizable to me. It's one of my favorite voices. I grew up listening to this person sing, so I'm not surprised. But maybe Tobias has a question or maybe a, an idea of who it might be. Um, I don't know who it is. I think that was a female voice, though. Okay. What was the indication to you that it was a female voice? Um, to me, the uh, I mean, why do I think it was a female voice? Yeah. Is that what your question was? Yeah. Um, what are the giveaways for you? I think the top sounded small enough on approach, mm -hmm. uh, and it just spun a little bit differently than what I would expect a male voice to sing. Okay, that's. Do you want to reveal? Should we go to the next clip? Yeah, of course. Okay. This was Cecilia Bartoli. 
who's a specialist in bel canto repertoire and particularly in Rossini and uh, you know early Italian Baroque and and Handel and whatnot. So she's, she's an, an expert an, of the voice. Yeah, she's <laughs> yeah. Um, she's amazing. amazing. She's and this is from an album called um, Sacrificium, I think. <laughs> it's an all castrato repertoire, <laughs> and like the cover art on this album is really bizarre. They have Cecilia Bartoli's face superimposed over some like broken marble statue with a broken That was very strange when I saw that. (laughs) Very, very strange. She's awesome. All right, do you want to hear the second one? Yeah, I know. I would just have the second one because it's a good... Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Please. So that's another singer who I cherish so much, and I recognize that voice anywhere. Um, but uh, maybe, uh, well, let Tobias give a stab at that one. Uh, I don't, I, you know, I kept listening to for it the voice to reveal itself that it was a man, and I don't know that it ever did. So if it yeah. is a man, then kudos. This is um, the French countertenor Philippe Charouski, who has uh, a bizarrely pure tone for yeah. a countertenor with a lot yeah, of core. Yeah. Sometimes the <clears throat> countertenor has a lot of like, uh, what you call it, like kind of like warmth in the sound, but no. Normally, like, I can tell in a countertenor, it would have been the opposite answer in the yeah. bottom. You can yeah. hear the chest really come in from the male voice, and that I think is the distinction. No, but Jaruski, it kind of tricks the ear often because mm-hmm. the voice is placed so high, and he's able to really sing one of those really penetrating sounds, like that sounds very. Like has a lot of core in it, you know. It almost sounds like a a young female voice, like an Emma Kirkby type of voice or something like that, you know. So how could stop me if I'm going to cut you off with what you wanted to do with this? But I think something that we think a lot when we're uh, developing new projects. For example, we're trying to develop a project right now that is sort of rooted in a number of historical periods where the majority of people in the public sphere were men, and we're trying to think about ways in which to incorporate women into the staging to. Um, well, uh, to pass the Bechdel test in a certain kind of way. But also, um, I mean, musically, it offers a, a much wider palette for Helga to work with if we have more kinds of voices on stage. And not even, and perhaps you want to speak to this, not even, of course, um, voices that one would n- normally anticipate from an opera production. But um, it seems to us that in contemporary opera, composers are, are very much limiting themselves to the kinds of voices that they they could be using, mm. um, whether we're talking about genre, you know, uh, having a mm. singer like Tom Waits <laughs> in, a, in an opera, as, as Hauke suggested, yeah. playing a little girl. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, having, and the father would be like um, a coloratura soprano. Mm. I mean, um, the thing is, my dream of an opera, of opera is a theater of voices. And I think we are limiting ourselves and our opp- opportunities if we um, do... So c- such clear gender-related uh, castings, but also if we um, always step into the same um, models of the hero being uh, at least a tenor and so on. There are so many other options, and especially if you try to, to show um, power relations on stage, um, I think not everything has been I'm, done. I'm, I'm with yeah. you mo- most of the way, but we have to remember that this is a, a oral medium, not just a visual medium. Mm-hmm. So when you, you know, give somebody music and they don't get to see it mm-hmm. and they only can understand it by mm-hmm. listening, mm-hmm. 
it can be very confusing uh, to have you know a older man played by a colored her soprano, for example. It's opera box score on WNUR eighty nine point three FM. It's an interesting point, Oliver. But surely this is not an oral <laughs> medium just in isolation. Right? Like well, we're never purely just listening. But uh, I like I, am I all like the time. Trust me. There's also a libretto generally to yeah. <laughs> No, but I like the, I like the point very much because. I've, I mean, I'm struggling with these questions all the time. What do I do if I want to show a love scene, for example? Um, I want the audience to understand the characters and to understand the erotic um, tension between the figures. Um, but there are many ways to do that. Of course, the easiest thing is to have a male singer playing a male character. Um, but there are other situations where, for example, if I'm talking about the Pope mm -hmm. entering stage, his sexuality is maybe not in the center of interest, mm -hmm. but other things like kind of he's powerful, but also like maybe a bit hysteric. Maybe he's a bit out of, um, he's not in the middle of, of himself. Or maybe he's power hungry. He's also power hungry and, and he's so why for him, for example, a coloratura soprano could be an ingenious idea, such as Mozart had when he f decided to have the Queen of the Night. Of course, I mean, this is a woman and a female singer, but this kind of singer could be interesting. But then are you relying on the rhetorical devices of earlier eras? To indicate power, to indicate fant fantasy, or something like that, you know. That's not a problem. And then it's the same gender roles, you know. That oh, just being, I see what you're it's saying. It's just uh, echo, an yeah. echo of those gender roles, you know. Yeah, but but you get at least some kind of alienation between it, and because um, the the audience, which is also looking as you said, mm -hmm. would see this is a pope or this is a king, mm -hmm. but would hear female voice. So otherwise, if I just fulfill the expectation that's being a male voice. Um, I would just um, continue Great writing point. the history of, mm. um, for example, male dominance. But I think also there are chances. I mean, normally deeper voices are sound more powerful, are kind of more sound more experienced, sound older. Mm -hmm. Look at Don Carlos. Yeah. Um, but I'm looking for ways to play with that. I haven't found the solutions yet. But I, I, I also think about using people like like overtone singers using um, people like, I mean, we won't get John Waits, but uh, voice performers who can do things like right. they can, what they can and do. And I think that's amazing to consider those types of people in opera. Hmm. But if you want your work to last, if you want your work to be performed, you know, in the future, you have to think about the type of training, you know, singers are getting and what skills they, they learn, you know. You're such a pragmatist. Well, but I mean, he's right. Yeah, no, of course, of course. Yeah. So not everybody can sing like Tom Waits. It takes many cigarettes <laughs> and lots right? of smoking. That's also interesting because we, we, when talking to um, colleagues of ours, they, they tend to think about questions like that quite a bit, and we probably should more, but we do, and we talked about this last time a little bit, we do write our pieces for the performance that we are writing for with the anticipation that maybe it will happen in the future, but we're not writing a piece for the future. We're writing it for the performance that we know will happen. So I think that right now a really great topic is the transgender community mm -hmm. and how many, like Chelsea Manning, you know, like I would love to see a musical drama about this transformation during, you know, mm -hmm. this trial or this imprisonment, like this, whatever. There's, you know, like, uh, Laura Kaminsky, right? Right. Her is a composer who has As One about a transgender woman, and it's written, the character is sung by two people, mm -hmm. a baritone and a soprano. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. Yeah. So it's kind of happening. Yeah, but there are also and transgender singers right now. Like, I actually yeah. had a chance to coach a transgender tenor, and it was so fascinating. She was like, wow, there's so many stories I could tell with this voice you what know? did you find something difficult about that or specifically challenging um i just well it just it was a young voice so that was already something but you could definitely you know there was something really charismatic about the singer but also very mysterious like you could not like i knew that this was a transgender person in advance so i already like was looking for those things but had i not known and just heard this voice like wow there's something really unique about this singer and I can't put my finger on it, you know? And it felt a little bit of, you know, between two two voice types, you know? But not like countertenor between two voice types, but like, mm -hmm. you know, you hear, uh, I mean, there's something about the feminine voice, the way 
women are taught to use their voices where, you know, things are, are higher and more, I don't know, the word I'm looking for Probably is cadence. like... So my friend Eugenia has this new vocabulary she's created called um, for assigning qualities to gender. She hates the idea that feminine should be nurturing and feminine should be mm -hmm. delicate and soft and that masculine should be powerful, et cetera. So she changes it to call, she says congressive and ingressive. So mm -hmm. con I forget which one is which, but congressive are what we think of as more masculine yeah. qualities, you know, but without mm -hmm. actually assigning to masculine, blah, you know. So there's something very naturally, let's say, ingressive about the way women use their voices, you know, mm -hmm. and yeah. Congress about the way men use their voices. Mm -hmm. And to hear, you know, a, a look at somebody who is mm -hmm. masculine, mm -hmm. but to sense that really ingressive characteristic mm -hmm. in their singing, you know, without mm -hmm. their necessarily being in, in the music. It's like, it's just, be, it's encrypted in right. the actual so voice. So what you're picking up on is a contrast between, between the character of the voice and the performance of the, of the, of the, of the body, right? Yeah. So you're, you're, you're expecting, you see I mean, there are singers, there's, a, there's a tenor, Leopold Simoneau, mm -hmm. uh, one of my favorite singers, Canadi Canadian tenor, he's from another generation, but his voice is so effeminate. Mm -hmm. And when he sings... I've never thought that when I listened to him. When he sings... <laughs> no, but seriously, I've never... Listen to him sing the and then think Orfei, like he does the, the Berlioz version of Orfei, uh, the, the French Gluck opera. He does this Orfei, and it sounds like he's really straddling two genders. Mm -hmm. Or he sings Unaura Morosa, mm -hmm. the cozy with the, it's a carry-on recording. When he sings this, it's so sweet and so tender, and you don't hear any aggression in it whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And that's a really difficult aria, and you have to thrust sometimes in mm -hmm. that aria to get over, like, up to the A, stuff like that. He just kind of wafts up mm -hmm. to them, and it feels so sweet. It's like... It's like it's literally like air, you know, surrounding you. His voice, you know. So talking about uh, the voice of the countertenor, we've been talking about it, how new this idea is of using one gendered voice to play a character of another gender. And Halke, you have a clip from yes. the opera Three Sisters. How does that fit into this picture? Yeah, so this is one of the most successful operas, at least of continental Europe, um, of the last 20 years. It's by um, Peter Oetvers, a Hungarian composer. It came out in 1998, and it's on Chekhov's Three Sisters, by a libretto by um, um, Klaus Henneberg, one of the most successful um, libertists. And so the three sisters are being sung by three countertenors. And in the original, in the world performance and also in many later stagings, um, they used very stylized um, mise-en-scene. And this was fantastic because it offered the chance to show the power relations between um, the three sisters and uh, the other characters, also the officially male characters, um, as power structures and not as erotic structures. Um, and that was something which was only possible because by the choice that just all voices would be sung by men, um, certain questions would just disappear. Well, and of course, you know, assume a very heteronormative... Yeah, yeah, of course, but, I mean, but that's what the story is. Yeah. So, so what, that's, of course, of course. I mean, that's also something which is also already then uh, then problematized mm -hmm. by this kind of um, um, uh, mise-en-scene. Mm -hmm. But that's something which is bec uh, that becomes possible by mm -hmm. such a decision. And I would love us to just to listen for a few seconds into the sound bit.
Thank you very much. Um, unfortunately, I made the mistake to not to write down the name of the singer. This is oh, is this from the studio recording? Yes. So uh, Alan Oban is Olga Vlacheslav Kagan Paley was Masha, yeah. and Oleg Ryabets is Irina. Okay, I think it's Olga. Olga. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the composer decides to show how to write for a female voice by using a countertenor. And I like, like that very much because um, out of a sudden, um, femininity is something which is, is a musical construction. But back to this point that Oliver was making yeah. earlier, didn't, um, didn't you tell me earlier that he's now made a version with for three soprano voices in the interest of having it performed in, um, in more places? There you go. I mean, come on, who does Utvush anymore, really, uh, like in the opera house? Well, this pr this piece has been produced 18 times since 1998. I believe Yuval Sharon did it this season in, in at the Burg Theater in their second stage. It might have been last season. Has I it made it to the States yet, this, this piece? I think it was in Where's New York. Where's your charts? Come I on. think it was <laughs> in New York. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's a, that's a that's a fair point actually. That um, I mean, eighteen productions since when ninety eight. So yeah. that's one a year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's crazy. Wow. That's okay. actually that's, that's actually, pretty frequent. That's actually pretty frequent. Okay, yeah. that was yeah. totally wrong. Hey, we're going to step aside for one second on the show. There's lots more to come on Opera Box. We're going to continue this conversation. Keep it right here, right now. WNUR eighty nine point three FM Opera Box Score. <laughs> Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Eighty percent of learning depends on vision, but eighty-six percent of children entering school have not had a thorough eye examination. It's hard enough for children to do well in school, but those with undiagnosed and untreated vision problems face an even greater challenge. Parents. Regular eye care is of critical importance to your children. Please get their eyes checked. This message brought to you by the American Optometric Association and WNUR. Driving has a rhythm all its own. Don't wreck it with a text. Before you get behind the wheel, silence your phone. Or better yet, designate a texter. For more text-free driving tips, visit StopTextStopRex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist. Tobias Wright, and Oliver the Man, Camacho. You. Sing it, baby. Okay, that's enough. Very fitting, Oliver the Man, Camacho, on our discussion here. George Cedarquist along with Tobias Wright. I'm here. Oliver, hey. did you hear that music? It was really inspiring. Uh, we could have been, like, grinding on that. What? Like, what? We're in Good different parts of the studio. <laughs> but we're not alone. Amy Stebbins is here. Hey. And Hauke Berheide is also here. The friendly German guy. <laughs> <laughs> That's my tattoo. The question of gender equality in newly composed operas is what we are talking about here. We've been listening to some clips comparing the male voice, the female voice, and figuring out how these voices fit into new operas. Can you have a character of one gender being sung by a character of another gender in a different voice type. I got to admit, it, it would be truly shocking to see that. I don't think I've ever seen it on stage. I don't know why it's not done more often. What is the barrier here? Is it just no one's thought of this before? Is there another barrier out there that is preventing this kind of approach to I composition? Mean, it's, been, it's been done. I mean, there's been a lot of you know, page boy characters and like young male characters played by sopranos. I mean, Carabino, you know, Oscar, uh, Octavian, Octavian, you know, sure. like it's been done, you know, but as far as like men playing women, that's the, we haven't seen so much of that. Yeah. Uh, so the, at the itch, how do you say this guy's name? Etwosh. Etwosh is, is original in that, in that yeah. sense. 
Yeah, and it's interesting to see how the productions over the last years obviously have demanded that he would offer a solution with female singers singing the roles. I mean, there may also be reasons which have to do with money because it's cheaper. There are just more female singers on the market and many opera houses have them in their own um, um, ensemble. Yeah. But still, I think um, there's kind of a step back Yeah, there definitely seems to be some sort of regression just looking at our at our charts. You know, we sort of looked at a couple of historical pieces. And again, these are all statistically completely, you know, unsatisfying. And no statistician would accept these because they're, um, you know, just sort of pulled out from our favorite titles. But if you look at, you know, the 19th century, you have about, let's say, 50% uh, female roles. And then you generally have one or two pieces in the piece that are gender-bending things. And it, as, you know, Oliver suggested frequently, a soprano playing a page or a mezzo playing a young boy um, or a pubescent boy. But if you look at works from the last, uh, you know, three or four years, including our own Chicago Bel Canto or South Pole from the uh, Bavarian State Opera, which premiered while we were there, um, Ares's New Exterminating Angel, Fellow Travelers, which is coming, These pieces not only have um, very, very low amounts of women in the cast, somewhere between generally 15 and 28%, uh, but they, uh, they have no gender bending whatsoever. Um, but I think one thing that we also want to talk about quickly, if we have another minute, Go ahead. is this, uh, what Oliver was suggesting about ki voice and inflection and the way that we kind of project in a certain identity onto a certain kind of voice and the way that this can be uh, extended beyond questions of gender or questions of sexuality into also questions of, of race. Um, it's not just women who have a kind of um, inflection that, uh, a stereotypical kind of inflection. You also have, uh, you have accents, dialects, you have class inflection, you have racial inflection. And the way that these kinds of things can be taken up by opera, I think it's an open question for, for us at least. But it's a huge, huge topic. And I'll just say that Opera Now podcast, a podcast I used to do. Um, we lost listeners talking about this very thing. Oh, sorry. We'll, we'll no, just no, stop it's, it's now. Totally, no, it's totally fine because we're on the radio. So Our numbers are strong enough. We know. Yeah, yeah, we don't. <laughs> we lose our two listeners. Well, I think in that case, it's important to come back to the first point that yeah. I made, which is that there are two different issues. One is a question of in industrial practices of hiring people. And as a, a woman, I, you know, I... Would agree. I think also you guys as men would agree that there are definitely um, injustices and there is preference and there is prejudice. And on the other hand is the question of what do we want to put on stage for imagining the relationship between a body and the things that this body could be mm. or could represent. And behind that question stands this phantasma of authenticity. And I am actually, opera is probably the most artificial Artificial, artificial um, art form one can imagine, if there's such a thing. Mm. But um, because nothing is like real life, right. no one sings. It's all a suspension. So, yeah. so therefore, everything is a representation of something else, and nothing is what it is. And I, when I sit at, the, at my at my desk and write something, I refer. To things, I refer to brutality, but there is actually no real brutality on stage. I hope, and um, I refer to noises, I refer to sounds, and I re also refer to representations of 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 types, of um, and at the end, probably also knowing or not knowing to a representation of yeah racial um, um, performances, mm -hmm. and so therefore. Um, playing with these questions could offer a way to get a bit more aware of them instead of just fulfilling them to having like I I mean I make this stupid joke like saying if I, I want an Inuit, Inuit dictator on stage I don't need an Inuit playing it but I can um, think about my own cliches of what that is and make them visible as cliches and that would be a very German thing to do is to make a cliche Inuit well okay <laughs> but you know what I mean yeah Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm crying yeah. in my beer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but I think that this sort of uh, questioning what <laughs> what an what an authentic person is and and who how representation can be challenged or how um, who the performer is can be called into question by the role that they're playing. I think <laughs> is something that we should have a more nuanced conversation about than simply 
um, these roles are for these people and these roles are for these so people. So just to wrap this up, like I'm crazy about what you just said about how opera is artificial and how we were always just referring to things but not really showing them. And I agree with you on that. But we still have to have something that the audience can relate to. Clearly. And my, my worry is always mm -hmm. that composers, really smart composers, I'm not saying you, mm -hmm. they get so excited <laughs> about these concepts that they forget to give something to the audience that they can hang on to, you know? Yeah, yeah, of course. So I want to see new stories. I want to see like all sorts of mixed up races. I want to see like Mariah Carey in there. I want to hear like weird noises. I want to hear countertenors singing weird stuff and color tour soprano singing old men. All this stuff, it sounds great to me, but we still have to make something that people will go to. We totally agree with that. <laughs> we totally yeah. agree with that. Keep and the conversation going uh, with us on Twitter at Opera Box Score. Right now, it is time for the two minute drill. This just in, the two-minute drill. Time now for the fastest headlines in opera news. Everything you need to know from Opera Land in the past week delivered in two minutes tops. Virio, the spiritual biography of a witch's accuser, is an opera about a woman imprisoned by psychological demons. It was filmed at Alcatraz, and it's thought to be the first opera conceived, written, and produced, and packaged for digital consumption. Broadway director Harold Prince has written to the New York Times letters page with an anti-Trump polemic commenting that, quote, there's a saying in the theater that whoever occupies the star's dressing room creates that atmosphere backstage. If you have a leading lady or a gentleman who's easy to get along with, undemanding, friendly, and charming, the cast follows suit. And if you have any problems, you have a diva or a narcissistic star, the atmosphere turns viral. Heading overseas at the Opera de Lyon, General Director Serge Denis, whose expenses for 2015 were recently released and caused a scandal in their lack of economy. He's now facing the music. In an open letter, employees of the Opera House express, quote, profound indignation at the bad image Denis has projected onto the company. Exit stage right, Maria Vanda Migliore, original designer of the floating opera stage at the Bregenz Festival, has died at 96. She was 25 when the festival experimented with its bold lakeside stage. On this day, the premiere of Rossini's L'Italiana in Algeri in Venice in 1813, and in 1960, the premiere of Hans Werner Hentz's Der Prinz von Homburg in Hamburg. And lastly, happy birthday, Richard Wagner, born today in 1813. Hey, is everyone smiling for you? Nope, it's just a lone grin. That's your two-minute drill. So a lot a ton there in the two-minute drill. We probably have time to just deconstruct one or two of those stories. We'll hand it over to our guests first. Amy and Hauke, what, what do you guys want to talk about on that rundown of opera headlines from the past week? Yeah, can we talk about Harold Prince? Because that's yeah, man. <laughs> what a lovely thing to do. I, I, I'm really always surprised at how little... Um, how little theater makers are are doing about the situation that we're in right now. Um, it's depressing. It's kind of scary. It's kind of pathetic. I, I guess if you're as rich as Harold Prince, it uh, doesn't matter what you do politically. Well, if you're Harold Prince, you can just write to the New York Times and they'll just publish it. And I was, was going to say, if you're Harold Prince, they'll put it in the New York Times. Exactly. Well, well you, you have to, here's the buy and at you. He just bought a page. Right. It's not about them putting it in. They'll take the money. Right, exactly. Harold um, Prince, director of... Gosh, countless Stephen Sondheim musicals. Phantom, yes, <laughs> absolutely. Did you do Cats? I mean, I feel like I grew up with Harold Prince uh, directing he, everything I loved. Did he do um, Sweeney Todd as well? Everything. Let's just say he did everything between 1982 and everything. 1998. That's exactly, <laughs> yes. <laughs> How could you have one you wanted to comment on? Well, I'm very happy that Hans Werner Hens is at least mentioned. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, the and, and the Lohengrin joke, too. And the Lohengrin. But honestly, right now, I see many, many new um, um, productions of Hens operas happening um, in Germany. And we will see if the music is still interesting and is still good these days. And if they are so, we will hear them here in this country, too. And I'm always surprised that Hensa is not done more in this country. Is I mean, I think strange. the music is great. Uh, Jakob Lenz, right? That's, oh, that's honestly Riem. Riem. Oh. But that's also a beautiful opera. Yeah, right. I guess, I guess the reason why Hensa maybe is a bit forgotten because he became too leftist in the 70s. 
But now the Prince of Hamburg that that's a play by Kleist, am I right? Indeed, yes. like like Penthesilea. Exactly, and isn't that like common reading for every German high schooler? But you read in high school, or yeah, everyone, I call almost everyone at least two is doing literature at school. Isn't it phenomenally boring? No, <laughs> it's one of the best plays ever written. And no. furthermore, the libretto for Hans Werner Hensel's Prince von Hamburg has been written by Ingeborg Bachmann, who is uh, one of the m most important um, poets of Austria of the mid of the 20th century. And she and Hans von Hensel were close friends and lived together in Italy while they wrote this, and the opera is beautiful. So I want to point to um, Bireo, that's B-I-R-E-O, colon, The Spiritual Biography of a Witch's Accuser, which is a webisode opera. And I feel like I should have written a manifesto like 20 years ago when I started first thinking about these things. Like, I do think that if opera is going to embrace, you know, that's current fractured audience and uh, technological situation we find ourselves in, that we should start doing things like this, creating really well-produced, uh, beautiful, beautifully shot with real cameras and a tripod and like a film director and an orchestra playing or at least a band playing and, you know, create an opera in webisodes. And release I was going to say the webisode part of it, I yeah. think, is important, too, because it's not saying, hey, look, we did this. You can download it. It's still four hours long. It's yeah. yeah I mean, that you can give it in snippets, I think, is huge because that's how we devour things. You think about releases of, you know, shows on Netflix. So this and is uh, an opera that's going to be released in 12 episodes. I think right. it's all being dumped at the same time, Netflix style. Yeah. Uh, but I like the idea. Right. I haven't had a chance to watch the whole thing, um, the, or w watch the excerpt that they put online. But um, it looks really beautifully done. Uh, I won't comment on the singing. I do want to say that just generally, like we still have to make sure that the musical <laughs> integrity is very high, and that when people watch it for the first thirty seconds, that they say, okay. This person is really talented. I want to see yeah. more, you know? This is the problem with the Twitter opera that we talked about, you know, uh, a couple of months ago, which I thought that was like a fully digital thing, too. So I don't get why the Vireo people are saying that they're the, well, the, the well, first. Well, the Twitter uh, opera was, it's just one one clip. It's not like. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So they're saying like a multi-part. All right. Yeah. All right. I'll give that. I'll give that yeah. to them. Hey, uh, check it out. We'll put the link on our website, operaboxscore.com. Right now, it's time to wrap the show up. Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score. Oh, yeah. Good call, bad call. Something fantastic from opera in the past week. Something lousy from opera in the past week. We're going to let our guests go first. Hauka and Amy, you guys don't have to agree, of course, on something that's been a good call or a bad call, but what do you have? Yeah, well, the problem is that we always see the same things. So uh, we're going to do this together. Uh, and what we had, we still didn't have because we're going to see it, but we already see like previews and excerpts. And that's the new production of uh, Romeo Castellucci of Tannhäuser in Munich. Munich. <laughs> um, and Which got really horrible reviews. Uh, by uh, many, many critics. However, uh, two very important reviewers gave it good reviews. Uh, musical is super Is Castellucci the guy that did the St. John Passion? Or yes, the Saint Matthew, Matthias, whatever. I think Matthew, it was. Yeah. 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 Um, let's put it this way. Uh, it sounds like a brilliant production. Petrenko is conducting. Um, they are having um, Vogt um, Estanhäuser. Anja Harteros. Anja Harteros. Um, okay, I know Anja Harteros, but who was the... Vogt? Klaus Florian, Florian Vogt. Okay. Oh, no. oh, yeah. And you're going back to Munich to see it? Well, well not to see it. <laughs> for other reasons, but we will be there and we will listen to it and watch it. Yeah. Now, if it had been released in webisodes, we could all watch it. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was live broadcast oh, during the okay. premiere. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, now we have no excuse. Yeah. Uh, hey, I, I would like to point to uh, the Boston Early Music Festival. Uh, this is a biennial, not biannual, annual, biennial festival that takes place in Boston that celebrates uh, early music, uh, Baroque music in particular. Uh, this year's centerpiece opera is Compras Le Carnaval de Venise. Uh, and they also do a chamber opera, which will be Pergolesi's La Serva Padrona. Um, so I'm going to go the second weekend. Uh, so see, meet me there, everybody, at Boston. If you always want to know what I look like and are too lazy to Google, <laughs> go to Boston and find me. He's very <laughs> handsome. <laughs> 
Hey, that's it for this week's show. What Our... about Tobias' is good call? No, he doesn't have anything. Okay. Our announcer is Norm <laughs> Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. The general manager at WNUR is Nick Anderson. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Like our page, share, love, or mock our posts. And on Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and help promote our show by leaving a review. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. The co-host is Tobias Wright. For our guests, Amy Stebbins and Helke Berheide, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera, even if you gave intel to the Russians. We're off next Monday to celebrate Memorial Day, but we're back on Monday, June 5th for more opera trash talk. Join us at 9 p.m. Central. Argo Radio is up next with G.J. Joe. This is WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago. Chicago's sound experiment.